Second Samuel, chapter seven. Starting at verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they'll in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Father, as we a great passage of Scripture and these promises that you made to your servant David. We quiet ourselves. We humble ourselves before uh, your word. And we ask that you would help us in these next few minutes to examine these promises you made to David, to examine the nature of this covenant you established with David and to uh, consider how it plays into uh, your word and how it is put together. So we ask for your blessing, even in these uh, next few minutes together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're coming to our next to last study on this topic of covenant theology. And uh, we have covered quite a bit in these last uh, 12, I think 12 weeks. And we talked about the theological covenants that overarch the, uh, the more explicit scripture. We've talked about the covenant made in the past uh, between the members of the Trinity. We've talked about uh, the covenant of works established with Adam at the time of his creation. We've talked about the covenant of grace, which uh, comes subsequently and, and is accomplished for us by uh, Christ and the benefits of the completed uh, covenant of works um, accomplished by Him. Those benefits are given to us by faith. And so we've looked at the overarching theological covenants, and in our discussion 
Um, in these more recent weeks, we've been talking about the more covenants uh, historically from the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant, which is established between uh, wherein he promises that he uh, will again um, destroy all of life by means of flood. And uh, also, he gives instruction in that covenant. He gives instruction that humanity is to pursue family, to protect and, 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 and preserve and promote family while also establishing justice and protecting life, right? And so there are exes there in that Noahic covenant. But it governs all of creation. It governs every living creature, uh, not just one particular family, not just one particular group, one particular person. It's established with Noah, but it is between God and all of creation. And so it kind of stands on its own. We call it a common grace covenant. Uh, it is in a different category. But then we moved on. We continue reading through the Bible. And uh, this, is, this is about um, uh, Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Then you get to Genesis chapter 12 and you encounter Abraham. And you see Abraham. We looked at that. Uh, we spent time looking at those three key chapters uh, in Genesis 12. God is establishing his covenant uh, with Abraham primarily what is being accomplished. There's a lot going on in the Abrahamic covenant, right? There, there, there are promises being made, um, and one of those promises is very... And another one has to do with establishing the people who will populate that land. And so we talked about... Um, I, I labeled this, and this label is not original, this being the establishment of the kingdom... Yes. Okay, just not working, huh? See the benefits of coming to church at night? So you get to hear it, and these people are going to miss some, and a little bit by trying to reach all the way across there and record. And if there are, last week we thought it might have been a sunspot day was causing the problems. Turns out, I guess that's not the issue. But here we are anyway, and so we're, we're talking about um, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, um, what we started by talking about the covenants of covenant theology, and then moving now to the more explicit covenants we find in Scripture. We talked about the Noahic, and it kind of stands on its own. And now we, we come to a different uh, set of covenants, and, and these covenants are establishing the kingdom of Israel. And the first one is that Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, we see promises of uh, land, uh, promises of um, uh, descendants that are going to come. They're going to actually be a nation. Uh, Abraham, this old man who he and his wife have no children, they're going to become a nation of people. And through them, there will be blessing to all the earth, right? And so we've got land, we've got people, we've got blessing through them to all the earth. Well, that that is uh, the Abrahamic covenant, and related to that is what we talked about last week, which is the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant is established between God and the people of Israel. So time has passed between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The people, uh, the descendants of Abraham have uh, have in fact multiplied, and then they go down into the land, of course, of Egypt, because 
there's a great famine that they are facing. And, and while they're there, uh, they end up staying for some 400 plus years and they become slaves. And, um, and then at the end of that time, the beginning of, of the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses and uh, he's going to deliver his people. And through a great um, a display of God's power over uh, Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, you see the people brought out of the land through the Red Sea into the wilderness and to the mountain where they received this covenant. And we looked at this covenant uh, uh, last week at the Mosaic Covenant. We saw um, starting really in Exodus chapter 19 all the way through uh, chapter 23, we see the giving, the initiation, and the giving establishment of that covenant. It's between God and between Israel. Between God and Israel are the two parties. Uh, we looked at what's involved in that. And to summarize what was given in the Mosaic covenant... We are continuing to talk about the kingdom of Israel. And here in the Abrahamic covenant, we have established who will be the populace. We have established in the Abrahamic covenant where the land will be. So the kingdom is going to have a place to dwell. And in the Mosaic covenant, we had established what is the law of the land. What is going to uh, be the governing law for this people. And so... Um, that's, a, that's a, a summary. We spent all last week developing that more fully. But if we want to summarize, God is establishing His work uh, here with the kingdom of Israel. We have the Abrahamic who establishes, uh, which establishes the, where the, 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 who the populace will be and then gives a, promises a land. The Mosaic Covenant establishes a law. And then we come today to our passage and we look at the Davidic Covenant. Okay, and so we have the Davidic covenant that we are going to come to today. And we could summarize just at the very outset, if we've got the establishment of a kingdom here, the kingdom has a place, the kingdom has a people, the kingdom has a law that's going to govern things, what is the kingdom lacking? The king, right? And so we could summarize very easily that way and say that the Davidic covenant establishes who will be the king of this land. But, of course, there's more to it than that. But uh, as far as understanding, uh, grabbing a basic understanding, uh, that can help us with that. All right? Uh, how do we get to the Davidic covenant? Time has passed. I've described what has happened between, uh, between the time of Noah and Abraham all the way to Moses. What about the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant is given all the way in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so uh, history has passed. Time has passed. The law was given in uh, the wilderness to the nation. They copied it down. Moses wrote it uh, and, and all of that. It was given to them in the nation or in the, in, in the wilderness as they were on the way into the nation. But they had not come into the land yet during the time of the giving of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, of course, you know the story. They do end up going into the land. And they end up um, cleaning the place out, more or less. Uh, they end up taking possession of the land and, uh, and living there. And then, of course, during the time of the judges, what do we see happen? The time of Joshua is, is kind of encouraging because the people are actually getting the, the land. You see that that promise uh, is being fulfilled, and, and it's an exciting time. It's an encouraging time. You have got ups and downs, etc. But you get to the time of the judges, and it's just this cycle that seems to get worse and worse because the people themselves continually, at least episode by episode and tribe by tribe, they, they, they fall into idolatry. 
And you know the cycle of the judges where they become complacent and then they fall into idolatry and then a foreign power will come and have have authority over them and, and maybe keep them captive or make them slaves or, or, or just subservient, right? They're being dominated by another power in their own land. And why is that? It's because of their own disobedience. It's because they've broken the law. It's because they've fallen into disobedience. And then God will raise up a judge and the judge will come and deliver them and they will repent. Uh, they will have cried out to God. They repent. God sends a deliverer and that deliverer, that judge, he's called, God will raise up a judge who will deliver them and, uh, and they will be restored and then that'll last for a while, possibly a few decades, and then they will grow complacent, they will fall into idolatry, they will become uh, uh, oppressed by another nation, etc. This cycle goes on and on and Judges is a very depressing book, right? And so you've got the people and they've, they've got a land and they've got a law but it's not going well for them, right? And what is the recurring theme of the book of Judges? There's a phrase, there's a sentence that's, that's recurring throughout Judges. And what is it? In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. King is a problem. The lack of a king is a problem in their setup. It's, a, it's, it's causing them difficulties. And so, uh, you, you go through Judges, and then you get into Samuel. Samuel comes on the scene. He's the last judge. Samuel comes on the scene, and he's judging the people. And, of course, he's a, he's a great judge. And, uh, but then what do the people say to Samuel? Samuel's getting old. as you know, He's going the way of all flesh. Old, and the people come to him, and they say, Samuel, you're old, right? Which, you know, you got to love it when people start a conversation that way, and they do. Samuel, you're old, right? Uh, so, yes, you've been a good judge, but you're about to die. Give us a king. Give us a king like the nations around us have so that he can judge us, so that he can rule over us. We want to be like the nations around us. This, this isn't working out for us. Now, there's some uh, it, it's a little bit of a the problems of the people and why they ask for that because Samuel gets angry and Samuel goes to God and, and he says, these people are demanding a king. That's awful and that's wicked. And God says to him, you know, Samuel, it's not you they've rejected. It's me they've rejected, says God to Samuel. So God recognizes and Samuel recognizes the heart of the people's plea is not just give us a king who can govern us under God and can be a holy man to, to lead a holy nation. No, they're looking to the nations around them and saying it works for them the way they're doing it. Let us do it like the nations around us do it. Give us that kind of king. And of course, that's deeply offensive to Samuel. That's deeply offensive to God himself. But God says, nevertheless, let it happen. Let it happen and give them a king. And so uh, they choose a king. And who do they choose? Mr. Universe. Tall, handsome dude, right? He's bigger than everybody else. He's, he's, they choose Saul, right? He's a... He's a man of the people or something, right? He's, he's uh, the obvious choice. He's, he's tall and powerful and he's strong and they want him to be king. And of course, we know how that goes. Saul is a lousy king. He's an idolater. Um, he's weak and, uh, and there are all manner of problems with him, okay? And so the people 
Um, I have, if you want to read about this, by the way, it's 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where you really, really read about that. Well then, of course, as Samuel is going south, or excuse me, as Saul is going south, uh, God appoints Samuel to go and anoint David, who's going to be a new king. This King David, this is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1, is where you read about that. God sends Samuel to anoint, ultimately, David, who will be uh, his king, the king of God's choosing, which is very different from the, the king of the people's choosing the big, good-looking guy. Instead, God sends Samuel to anoint David, who is kind of far down the litter. <laughs> He's not necessarily the runt of the family, but, but kind of, right? So that's who David is. Well, God has now chosen a king for the people. He has now anointed him and and uh, it's a very interesting study to see how he finally becomes king and how he relates to Saul before he does that, etc. It's a very interesting uh, story. But here we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And of course, David has had some success. He's taken the throne. And David, being a man of God, who loves God, a man after God's own heart, what does he want to do? He wants to build a house for God. And so he's talking to Nathan, and, and, he, and he tells him, I want to build a temple for God. He's spent long enough in the tent, the tabernacle that gets packed up and traveled around, and, and it's hundreds of years old by this point and all that. Uh, enough of me dwelling in a beautiful house and God living in a tent. I'm going to build for God a temple. And of course, Nathan at first says, hey, that sounds like a great idea, but, but the Lord corrects him. And the Lord says, no, David is not going to be the one who's going to build the temple. David's a man of bloodshed. David is a warrior. David has, has killed uh, his, you know, his fair share and more than his fair share of people. He's not going to be the one to build the temple for me. It's not going to be him, but it's going to be his son. And so in that context, we come to our passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, starting at verse 8. And so, um, we, could, we could start up at verse 4 and kind of pick up uh, from, uh, uh, from the conversation there between God and Nathan. Um, God, God had said to the, or excuse me, Nathan had said to the king in verse 3, go and do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. Great idea. Verse 4, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house, build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Right? So God is, God is saying, do you remember where Samuel found you? Do you remember where you were? Where I took you from? Where I grabbed you was from the pasture, from following the sheep, and, and I, God, established you into the position of prince over my people Israel. You are where you are, David, because I put you there. I sent... Samuel, to anoint you, and here you are, as it is today, I have put you here. 
Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. David, you've had victory after victory. You've had great success in life, and it's because I have been with you to give you that. It's because I have been empowering you. I have been fighting for you. I've been protecting you. I've been putting you into position. Okay? So this is language of covenant. We've noted before that the word covenant doesn't occur in this passage. But we see that he's starting off with the preamble. He's starting off by reminding David. David hasn't forgotten, but it's the establishment of a covenant. It's laying out the history of God and his dealings with David. You were a little boy shepherding in the field when I found you. And I have placed you as prince over my people. I have been with you. I've given you victory. I've done all these things. I have right and authority. You and I have relationship. We have history. I have authority to do what I'm about to do and say what I'm about to do. And he continues in verse 9. And I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. If you underline in your Bible, uh, or if you're just taking notes, pay attention to all the I will statements. What God says He is going to do. I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. He's, He's going to elevate David. He's promising David He's going to elevate him to a position of very great fame and significance. Verse 10, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Right? So he's saying, I'm going to plant you where you are. Now, during the time of David, uh, David is still fighting some enemies of the people. He's establishing the borders of the land because they have allowed enemies to live there and uh, and the Philistines are a problem and and, and all of that, right? So David is fighting these skirmishes and it's, it's, yes, it's their land, but there are other people living there also and the life of David has been about killing those people, driving those people out, dealing with those people and God says, I'm going to give you a place that will be appointed, will be established, And it's not just the land he's talking about. What's the city of David? The city of David is Jerusalem, which was something captured in his lifetime that belonged to a a foreign uh, foreign peoples, the Jebusites. Jebus or Jeb, I don't know how to pronounce it. J-E-B-U-S is another name for Jerusalem. That's going to be headquarters. David had established uh, his, his throne elsewhere. Saul had established his throne elsewhere, uh, the place from which they are ruling. And God is saying, I'm going to establish your name and your throne and your uh, center of uh, political authority here in the city of Jerusalem. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, there's still going to be wars. There's still going to be enemies that will fight against them. But God will be doing the fighting, and thus they will have victory. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I love the language there that this whole conversation was started because David wanted to make God a house. And God says, David, thank you. I'm going to make you 
a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is, he is establishing David's throne and his, uh, those who come from him, his descendants will sit upon that throne. He, and specifically he's talking here about Solomon, I will establish his kingdom, the one who will come from you, and he will build a house for my name. David, you wanted to build a house for my name, but you're a warrior. You've got blood on your hands. You're not going to be the one to do it, but you will have a son, and this son of yours will come, and he will establish and build uh, a house for my name, says God. And you continue in, in verse 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? God is, God is doing something more than just appointing one person to be king. He's now talking about his descendants and, and that uh, this one coming from him will build a house for my name and his throne will be established forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So God is promising he's going to discipline this king. Now, Solomon comes along, and Solomon is, is the next king in line, and uh, Solomon is disobedient, and Solomon uh, experiences this kind of discipline. But there's a promise made uh, here that's going beyond just Solomon. Yes, Solomon is going to build the literal temple, and Solomon is going to take the literal throne, and he's going to have his throne established, and that throne is going to be an enduring uh, office, as it were, but there's going to come a time for him and for every subsequent king in the nation of Israel when they will commit iniquity and thus be disciplined by God. But the beauty about this and the, the commitment by God that is being made here is that God himself will see to that discipline. And we talk about the difference between punishment and discipline. He's disciplining him as a father would discipline his son. He's treating, as we read earlier, he's treating this one as his own son. The relationship between the two will be as father and son, the beginning of verse 14. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. That's a special relationship that God is establishing with David and with David's offspring particularly. So when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But even though I'm doing that, while I'm disciplining him, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. There is a vast difference between the relationship of Saul and God versus the line of David and, his, and their relationship with God. Steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan gave that uh, report to David. So here's the promise, and there's a lot going on in there, isn't there? Uh, clearly this is a covenant being established between God and David and elsewhere in Scripture we see that this is referred to very explicitly as a covenant that God made with David talking about exactly the events that went on here. But what I want to do is for us to think through 
the basic elements of this covenant. And when we think through the elements of the covenant, we talk first about the parties. Who are the parties in this covenant? God and David plus, right? Descendants, right? So the parties are God and David and David's descendants. Very clear, right? That's why we call it the Davidic covenant. All right, and um, we're going to break it down and talk about what are the promises And you see that there are a number of promises. Excuse me, had you underline, I will, or had you pay special attention to it, and there are a lot of things that he says. Says God, I will make of you a great name, verse 9. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Uh, And then continuing on, verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Continuing, the Lord will make you a house. Verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him, verse 14, a father, and he shall be to me a son, and I will discipline him. There's a lot of I wills in there. And some of those are we could call promises because it's good news. Uh, others, uh, slightly less so. And we can categorize these in various ways. We can think about these in detail. But the first thing we want to notice, the promise of an established throne. This throne is going to be established. And we saw that very clearly there in uh, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And you can see this developed in other places. For example, Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a powerful psalm reflecting on this covenant. Looking at verse 3 of Psalm 89. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So there we have very explicit language calling this covenant a, uh, a covenant indeed. Likewise, we could look at uh, Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I teach them, their sons also shall sit on your throne. So reflecting on that same covenant, we could develop that more. But secondly, not just an established throne, but rest from enemies, right? Rest. He says he will give him rest and prosperity in Canaan. So while I'm uh, writing this, if I could have someone look up, please, uh, 1 Kings 
1 Kings 8, 56. What's the context of that? I'm sure you guys have 1 Kings memorized, right? 1 Kings 8, 56. This is Dave, uh, excuse me, David's son Solomon. And he's praying. He's praying at the dedication of the temple. So here is this one who is the promised uh, son, and he has built uh, the, the, the temple as he said he would, and he's praying. And what does he say in, um, in 1 Kings 8 and verse 56? Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses, his servant. There is indeed this rest spoken of by by Moses and redeclared in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that rest has been accomplished. That Solomon looks and he says, we have rest from our, from our enemies. God has granted us this. The promise has been fulfilled. And we could continue looking at the promises and see that we're, um, God promises himself his own presence and protection. He's going to be a father to him. He's, verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went. Right? I have been already, David, with you wherever you went. And then we see verses 13 through 15, what this relationship is going to look like. We're back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, etc., right? My steadfast love will not depart from him like it did from Saul. So we have part of the the promises here, God's presence and protection. When we talk about promises, we also talk about sanctions. It's like a negative promise, as it were, promises that are a lot less fun. What are the sanctions that we read about? We just read it in verse 14 about God's discipline of him. I'll be to him a father and he a son to me, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Right? We, we, could, uh, we already read in Psalm 132 that that promise was extended to uh, future kings of Israel as well. So you've got God's discipline. That's the first stipulation. Now, that's good news. Excuse me, the first sanction. It's good news, but it's pain. Good news, right? It is, it is God's, uh, the presence of God's discipline and even God's judgment at certain points. And uh, leading up to a very big stipulation, excuse me, sanction. I keep saying that. If I could, uh, if we've already been in 1 Kings 8. Let's go to 1 Kings 9. Because... Solomon prayed that great prayer at the dedication of the temple. And we have the Lord's response. First Kings chapter 9, uh, verses 4 through 9. And as for you... If you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, uh, 
doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a, a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside, verse 6, from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, them. then, verse 7, I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the household that I have consecrated uh, the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And his, this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So one of the sanctions, the greatest, the worst sanction is to be cut off from the land. To be cut off from the land. Those are stiff sanctions. God's discipline up to and including being cut off from the land uh, when they get to a certain level of disobedience. Uh, the stipulations, I don't have time to, to develop these further. I'll give you, um, I will give you the three stipulations. And then uh, I encourage you to go study them for yourself. Um, but we don't, we don't have time really to look at them tonight. But stipulations... All right, uh, the first one, the command is to guard God's sanctuary. The guard, the temple of God, right? That's where God lives. Now, what's interesting is this is like a priestly function. That's interesting. Guard the temple, right? We have... Uh, the whole conversation leading up to the Davidic covenant was about the temple. David said, I want to build a temple. And God starts by saying, well, no, not you, David, but it's going to be one to come. And then you remember even what the conversation we just read in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 and 9 was about was discussion of the temple. At the, at the dedication of the temple, God says um, in, in uh, 9, in chapter 9, in response to uh, Solomon's prayer, he says, well, um, yes, I will bless you in all manner of ways, but if you, if you persist in this kind of disobedience and idolatry, I will eventually destroy this temple. I will eventually remove this temple. Removing the presence of God from, uh, from the midst of the people. And so how is it that the king is to guard the temple? Well, it's all kinds of ways, but it, it, it includes obedience for sure. Keeping worship pure. And as you read the rest of Kings and Chronicles, you read uh, the rest of the history of the uh, kingdom of Israel or, or Israel and Judah. The king was praised when he purified worship. And he was uh, spoken against. He was criticized strongly if he allowed idolatry to continue. Or, in the case of Manasseh and some others, if they promoted idolatry. Right? 
And so they're to guard the temple, which is a priestly function. They're to guard, uh, to guard the temple that way. Secondly, they are to keep God's law. And um, which, is, which is interesting, uh, this is a prophetic function. And a passage for this, by the way, the passage for um, guarding the temple is what we looked at um, there in 1 Kings 8. So 1 Kings 8 and um, 27 through 29. And for uh, keeping God's law, um, we talked about this extensively a couple of years ago. We did a couple of evening services about Deuteronomy 17. And the promises and the instructions given by Moses to the people before they went into the land. And he says, there's going to come a time when you want to establish a king, and you may. And when you decide to set up this king, here's what he's to be like. Right? He's to be from among your own people. When, when you make him king, he's to copy down the law and, and, and be observed in doing so, be guarded and taught in doing so by the Levites. So he's to be a man of God's Word, and there are other things as well uh, in there. So you, you could look at uh, Deuteronomy um, 17, 14 through 20. Uh, and then also, even if you look at just um, 1 Samuel 7, 14, you saw, excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, 14, what we were just looking at, he says, I will be a father, he'll be a son, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. What's the inverse of that? He should obey, right? He should not uh, commit iniquity. Uh, and so even our own passage here talks about that. And then here's where we're going to land. He's to represent God's people, right? He's to represent God's people, that he is a representative of the nation of Israel before God. He's a federal head representing his people before God, which is interesting because this is a kingly function. Right? So you've got the function of a priest and prophet and king. All wrapped up in the one uh, king of this land. He's to represent God's people. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, as I said about him keeping God's law and about guarding the temple, as you read through the history of uh, the rest of the history of the nation of Israel up to and including the time of the exile, as the king goes, so goes the nation. If he is obedient to God, the nation is blessed. If he is disobedient to God, the nation suffers the consequences. And you can think of example after example after example of this, right? When, when we talked in Sunday school this morning about, uh, about David being incited to number the people, he's, he's, he's going to do this census. Well, that's, a, that's a terrible sin. He was, there's a lot to that, but he was, he was relying upon the size of his army, and saying, I can take on this guy and that guy and this guy because I've got this army. Instead of thinking, I've got God as my father. I don't need to be afraid of anybody. 
Instead of relying upon God, he was relying upon his standing army. He was relying upon those he could conscript or whatever. That's a terrible evil. Where does the judgment fall? On the people. The people face the judgment. The people suffer the consequences because he's the federal head. The king represents the people. As the king goes, so goes the nation. He represents his people. And this is the nature of the Davidic covenant. This is, this is the essence of it. That it's, uh, it's this agreement made with the line of David that when, when we spoke about the Mosaic covenant, the, the, the law was given to the nation in general. And we saw the chaos that resulted during the time of the judges where you had these people who uh, fell into idolatry and they suffered over here. And you had this different tribe who fell into idolatry and suffered over here. There was just chaos going on uh, in every way during the time of the judges. And the author of the judges says, that's because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samuel comes on the scene and the result ultimately is David the king. David who represents the people. And when David is obedient to God, the people are blessed. Think about Solomon. Is when Solomon is obedient to God, when he's building the temple, when he's doing all these things, when, when he's pursuing right worship and, and, and he's honoring to God, the nation is blessed and rich and glorious, so much so that the, the queen of Sheba comes up to visit him to marvel at, at, the, at his wealth, at, at what he serves for dinner, at his, at his wisdom. So you've got this very great blessing that is uh, coming to the people because of Solomon's obedience and, and God's blessing on Solomon that he represents the people. And that's 1 Kings 10. It's all great news to that point. And then things go south in 1 Kings 11. And we begin to see Solomon's disobedience. We begin to see Solomon's idolatry and what happens to the nation. By the end of his life, God says to him, because of your persistent idolatry, I'm going to tear the nation away from you. I'm going to tear it in two. I'm going to, t- I'm going to take ten, ten tribes, and I'm going to give them to your servant because of your disobedience. He says, I'm not going to do it in your life. I'll do it after, after you're gone. But nevertheless, this is what is going to happen. The nation is torn in two because of the disobedience of Solomon the king, sitting on the Davidic throne because he represents the people. And so what happens in the Davidic covenant is, uh, whereas in the Abrahamic, the land was promised and the, the populace was designated, and in the Mosaic covenant, the law was given, but remember, for each of these, obedience is required. God is going to, po- to accomplish His great purposes, but you can opt out. You personally, individually, can be, in, by your disobedience, excluded from that. Just don't undergo circumcision. Just don't circumcise your children. Or uh, just yourself, uh, uh, don't keep the Mosaic law, and, and God will still accomplish His purpose. This is the law of the land. You can just be cut out of it. But now, with the Davidic covenant, we have an individual who is established, who represents His people before God. And it's His obedience and disobedience, not exclusively, but it's His obedience and disobedience that that leads to blessing and cursing upon the entirety of the nation. And so as you're reading through Kings and Chronicles, it's almost the new year. You're going to start over in Genesis 1 again, I'm sure. 
And then uh, about April or whatever, you're going to get into Kings and Chronicles. You're going to start reading about these kings and pay attention to when the king is obedient, the nation is blessed. When the king is disobedient, the nation is cursed. So we have in the Abrahamic covenant the establishment of the land, the populace, the Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law, and in the Davidic covenant, you've got the king the one who represents the people. And as the king goes, so goes the nation. Now, of course, you and I know the history of Israel. We can follow that forward and we can see it goes south. Uh, 1 Kings 10 was the high point and then it goes, it goes downhill after that, all the way up to and including exile. And you begin to see the rise of the prophets who were saying, God made promises to, uh, to David and David's offspring and they're not being fulfilled generation after generation after generation after generation. We're seeing that we don't have the ultimate rest. We don't have the ultimate deliverance. We don't have the security in the land like we're supposed to have. We don't have the, the, the security uh, of, of, of that uh, presence of God like we ought to. And actually, you see, I, I, I read Ezekiel not long ago, and it's terribly tragic where you've got this vision of the glory of God coming out of the temple and, and like going to the edge of the city and then leaving. Can you imagine the tragedy? The presence of God is their reason for being. And He's left because of their idolatry. So there's this expectation. There's still going to be someone who's going to fulfill this. There's still going to be someone whose throne will really be forever. And His kingdom will really be perpetual but He's not come just yet. And so this is, this is establishing, finishing off for us the old covenant relationship between God and His people as, as put together by the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and now the Davidic. So the Abrahamic established a nation of Israel, promised them a land. The Mosaic covenant established the law that was to govern that land. The Davidic covenant establishes who will be the king and federal head of the nation and promises a future one who will have this throne eternally. And so that's the Davidic covenant in a, in a nutshell. What we've done is we've created a situation where there is expectation the boundaries are set of the promises that need to be fulfilled, the obedience that needs to be accomplished, and there's been no one to do it. And so we begin to look for the Messiah, the anointed one who will come, who will do all of these things that each of these kings fails to do. And so the stage is set for the Messiah to come on the scene. And so when we come to the new covenant, we're going to see this coming to fruition coming to conclusion. And, uh, and then, of course, we come to the New Testament and we see it played out on the pages of the New Testament as this has been fulfilled for us in Christ. So I know that was fast and furious. I, that was one page of notes, by the way. I think there's something about the fewer, fewer notes you have, the longer it takes, but nevertheless, let's pray. Hmm? Is there, what, is there an oath sign? I, I don't think so. There's, there's, there's question about whether the throne was the O sign, but I think that's stretching it a little bit. I don't think there was one. Um, 
Yeah, was there no sign? I don't, I don't think so. But there is discussion about that. Let's pray. Father, we have looked very quickly at uh, the promises You made to Your servant David that had great consequence on the nation of Israel, had great consequence on, on uh, the, the fate of uh, that nation, that as the Davidic king was obedient, they experienced blessing and prosperity and protection. And as he was disobedient, they experienced the reverse, that they were exposed to their enemies, that they, that they became weak, they became dependent upon others and overrun by them, and, and they, had, uh, they had great turmoil and difficulty because their king represented them. And there's hope attached to that, but that hope was dashed again and again and again, generation after generation. And the expectation was created that even we looked at this morning in, uh, in, in our service this morning, the expectation that there must be one who is going to come on the scene who will be obedient, who will have the government resting on his shoulders, one who will represent his people and do so finally and perfectly and fully. And of course, that one is Jesus, promised to us in, uh, in this covenant, but made much clearer in the new covenant and comes on the scene in the New Testament, and we get to worship by name. Thank you for Jesus who represents us, who has obeyed, has taken upon Himself the punishment for our disobedience. The, as, as, as the king goes, so go the people. Well, the king has, has, has been holy and righteous and pure. Your son, your beloved one. And so we who are his people by faith, we're treated the same way with that same love that you have for the son. And so we rejoice in Jesus our Savior. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we think about covenant theology and think about how it is that the covenants of Scripture work together. May we not just think about how the puzzle fits together or something like that, but may we see your saving purposes, what you are accomplishing in this great work as you've revealed it to us in your word. We are grateful for your word, and we are grateful most of all for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of that. Thank you for him, and we pray in his name. Amen.